So in general, I'm always a fan of transparent pricing. I think if you are really confident in what you're offering and you really have done the work to understand what customers value and to price and package it accordingly, there's no reason not to price transparently. You are listening to This is Product Marketing, brought to you by Product Marketing Hive, a product marketing community that gives back. In this episode, Laura Smouse, Senior Director of Product Marketing at Verblio, shares her thoughts on how to approach B2B SaaS product pricing and packaging. Let's dive into it now. Thank you for joining us today, Laura. Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So shall we get started with a short introduction of yours, um, like background, how did you get into product marketing? Um, I got into product marketing through working in marketing and technology together for a long time. So um, my background is in, in business and technology and um, spent some time there. And then I spent uh, quite a few years at, a, at an agency doing brand strategy and interactive strategies. So I think that's where I first started combining the uh, the storytelling aspects with um, with how the technology fulfills it, and in that case, um, it was um, things like things like websites and how they fulfilled um, our client strategies. But um, at some point, then I, I made the leap and started working for startups um, mm-hmm. of all different shapes and sizes, and I think um, they were all technology startups, and that's really where. Um, I solidified my um, my love for product marketing and, um, again, uh, tying that storytelling aspect to the um, the technology and go-to-market aspects of software companies that are growing. Great, great. Um, I'm very excited about our conversation today. Like you introduced, that you have very extensive experience in the startup. So uh, our today's topic is B2B SaaS pricing and packaging. It's like kind of one of the complicated core activities for product marketers, right? If not the most. Because every business, uh, they have to decide how much they charge people for their services or their products. And then pricing plan is a very difficult decision for them to make. So in your experience, what like a B2B says pricing models you have seen? And then like what are the differences there? Absolutely. Uh, well, I think, you know... Uh, Pricing is uh, an area to me that's super fun and super interesting. It's also a really big lever for growth for companies. So a lot of companies, especially uh, B2B SaaS companies, are really focused on uh, customer acquisition. Um, And at some point, maybe they'll also focus a ton on retention. But really looking at how you optimize your pricing and packaging strategies can um, can be an even more effective lever for growth. So getting it right is super important. And it's an area that um, doesn't get too much attention or in, in many cases doesn't really get um, sort of rigorous attention paid to it. Um, you know, I think once uh, once SaaS became popular, um, people started to really gravitate towards um, what is uh, the most common packaging strategy that sort of bronze, silver, gold, good, better, best, um, three-tiered yeah. subscription model, um, which is great. And it works. it works well for a lot of folks, but there are actually... A number of other ways to um, to put together what you're selling and to uh, to allow customers to uh, to buy it and consume it. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time just also trying to understand, you know, what are those other options and how do you figure out what's a good fit for your particular product or service. The the good, better, best one I think is about represents about seventy percent of SaaS companies. Last time I checked, um, and it's great if you have um, features that can be sort of stratified across those tiers. Um, and that really are easy to um, 
for your customers to understand, you know, the value of those features and, and where to, you know, how to fit themselves into one of those packages. Um, but it's not great in some other areas where, um, for example, you may have um, one really strong product offering um, and uh, you actually need to include everything in that offering in order to get people to, to value, right? Hmm. Same thing with um, what they call category bundles. So there might be uh, particular roles or personas that um, need a certain set of your features and um, others that don't. Um, and so in that case, allowing them to um, to buy into the model that works for them uh, makes a ton of sense. Um, and then there are other ones that really are, are purely segmented by, by roles or use cases. If you think of um, what might happen in terms of uh, an HR or people team within a company, there may be people who are um, really focused on the, the recruiting and hiring piece. And then there may be people who are focused on the day-to-day -day people operations. And those might be um, very separate parts of your, of your software, um, in which case you want to make sure that you are giving them, you know, again, the option to sort of self-identify. Um, LinkedIn's another good example. Um, there's LinkedIn for recruiters and then there's LinkedIn for job seekers. And um, those are uh, priced and packaged separately because they're really specific to that use case. Yeah. Um, and then you have ones that are, are really modular. So you see that with a lot of companies that um, might have more technical offerings, right? So people might need um, to tack on SMS or tack on, you know, um, different levels of um, API access or different capacity for different things. And so allowing people to really um, build their own package in those cases uh, might be most appropriate. And so again, um, good, better, best makes sense in a lot of cases, but um, really looking at what it is that um, that you have, um, how much value is delivered through different parts of it, and then how well your audience understands that value uh, is a really great starting point for figuring out which packaging strategy is going to be best? So um, let, let's talk about a little bit about the 70% where people are using the, the three-tiered pricing plans, the free version, paid upgrade, and then there'll be like a third version. Sometimes it would be like enterprise, probably don't even have price on this at contact sales for quote. So what do you see like in this scenario, what is the purpose of the free tiers? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think freemium is misunderstood a lot of the time. Um, it I don't consider it a plan level, really, um, even though visually it's represented that way in pricing grids. I consider it a tool for acquisition. Um, so the main purpose that I think it serves nowadays is um, actually to, I think, get, get people experiencing the value of your product before you ever pitch them in any way. So, um, you know, I think if people are really active users and they are deriving a lot of value, they're really receptive to whether it be, um, you know, marketing messaging or uh, a direct interaction with a sales team, because you don't have to explain, um, you know, what you do, how it provides value. They've It's actually something they've experienced for themselves. Um, so I think in that case, just giving um, giving somebody a little bit of a runway to, uh, to experience that value before you interact with them can be a really cost-effective way of, um, of approaching the marketing and sales process. Um, I think also, like I said, as an acquisition tool, um, you know, if you're able to um, to get people to discover you and to um, have, you know, some level of stickiness interacting with you by um, by offering them some things that you've already built, um, it really makes a lot more sense than um, in, in many cases, you know, focusing more on 
um, paid acquisition or things like that, where you know you don't you you still have a lot of work to do once you've brought them to your site or once you um, start interacting with them. Yeah, and now when do you say it doesn't make sense to offer the free trial or free tier? When would it be in the case that it just doesn't make sense? I you know the the most common one for me is if there's um, if there's either complexity or a long time. Uh, to first value. So if whether it be because the product's not especially uh, user friendly or it doesn't have a great user experience or maybe, you know, just the nature of it is something that is complex or requires a lot of upfront work um, to get to first value, that can be difficult, right? Because um, sometimes you only get you only get one shot. And if people come in, they poke around, it's difficult to get started that's going to influence um, their receptiveness to any of your your messaging going forward, right? So I think, um, you know, difficult to get uh, to first value, time to first value is long or bad bad user experience. And it might be worth, you know, investing some time there. And, And it really is an investment, right? Because I think you don't want free users to have to interact a lot with your human teams, right? That's, that's costly. And you also don't want them stumbling around and, and not, being able to recognize what's there. So, um, you know, if you're not willing to make the investment in having a really good self-service experience, and and that's something I feel really strongly about, even if, you know, even if you have customers that are heavily managed and maybe don't use your software a lot, it it should be that they could if they wanted to. They could be successful on their own uh, because the quality of the experience is so good. Yeah. And I will add another one scenario to the case is that when your uh, free trial actually meets the people's needs because they got what they want already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you should have a plan for how to monetize it. Um, just getting people there and not not having a plan for that is difficult. Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly you can leverage that audience to understand like what features could you build that would be high value um, or high willingness to pay. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, if there's not a compelling reason to go beyond that, there's there's a number of companies that have had that struggle and it's taken them they've either not figured it out or it's taken them a really long time yeah like you said uh one of the things that people need to make sure when you do a tier pricing is that your audiences actually get your value right through the products some of the tier pricing like the third version would be like enterprise contact us for quote and the most cases if you really sort of calculate it right compared to the sort of the second tier sometimes it might be more expensive but uh in the end the service, the product you deliver to the tool tier is essentially the same. How do you communicate? Just make sure that uh, the two different segments, they get the value. Like, how do you bridge this thing? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I think that the really taking an honest look at your offering and saying, you know, is is there is there enough here to start peeling things apart? Um, is it not only something that um, has high value to folks, but has a high willingness to pay. So, um, you know, making sure again, you're starting with the right raw materials. Uh, it can be very difficult to be successful with a, with a three-tiered strategy if that simply doesn't exist in your product. Right. And that's why, um, I encourage people to consider some of these other packaging models because it might actually be much, much better. Um, and then I think as you get into enterprise, you know, there's um, there's certainly capabilities that may be unique to enterprise. Um, let's say more uh, more advanced integrations or assistance with that. Um, like I said, more um, reporting or automation uh, because you're you're in a more complex environment, or maybe there's a, a much higher number of, um, of of people using it, or they work across different functions in the company. Um, but I also think it can be um, a way to 
to make sure that their use of what might be the same software is well supported by, um, for example, you know, customer success teams or dedicated account managers to really help them unlock the value and like plan how they're going to continue to increase their value they're getting from the software going forward. So I think in that sense, um, you can really look at um, a lot of the enterprise offerings as being a deepening of the relationship and, um, you know, ha having sort of a sidekick to help you, like I said, recognize and unlock increasing value, adapt to business changes, um, plan for growth, all of those things. Um, when again, the, the underpinnings might be very similar, but the way they're using your product and the complexity um, and, and then, you know, how they're potentially, like I said, communicating or sharing the, the success or failure of using your product with their their um, their colleagues is a huge piece of it. Yeah. And then pricing is always like price per something, right? And then what are the considerations there as a product marketer when we decide based on what we need to price it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think having the packaging model figured out and figuring out what's feasible is to me, you know, the first step, really understanding your audience and what they value um, as a key piece of that. Uh, and then looking at what is a value metric that scales with the value they're receiving. Um, a lot of times people want to do a per seat model because that's that's what Salesforce did initially. And they were, you know, some of the, that was quite a few years ago. A lot of things have changed, but also that makes total sense for a CRM, right? Because every, um, every butt you're putting in a seat is theoretically bringing in dollars for your company. And so there's a really direct relationship between adding those additional sales um, sales team members and um, bringing in additional revenue or creating additional opportunities. Uh, in some cases, that doesn't make sense. So um, I worked for a uh, an applicant tracking system, and um, they we had competitors uh, that would limit the number of users, and that never really made sense to me because if you look at um, how hiring, especially how hiring is done now, um, it's a very collaborative effort. You usually want um, a number of people from different teams within the company to be part of it. And cutting people out of that equation is going to actually compromise your compromise your hiring, right? And so in that case, um, you know, the thing that really, in, in my opinion, translates a lot more to scaled value is, um, for example, number of open positions, right? Because um, that software is really enabling growth of the company, which is a, a clear clear value, right? Um, there are companies that have, um, you know, consumption, uh, consumption is a big piece of it. And it's really clear value, like AWS would be an example that are others where, um, you know, there's a pretty direct line between that amount that you're using or consuming and the value that you're getting. And so in those cases, you know, I think um, you shouldn't try and get, uh, get creative or break the model if it's something that actually makes a lot of sense for folks. Um, but then there's other cases where, um, you know, where things change and models change. Um, the company that I worked for, Verblio, is a content creation platform and marketplace. And um, for years and years and years, uh, content creation was really sort of priced per word. Um, and we're actually right now starting down the path of, of changing that model because um, uh, more words doesn't necessarily translate to better performance of that content, right? Or you may have really high value content that's actually really short, or you may be refreshing content instead of creating new content, which might take words away. So it really, really breaks that model. And so we're looking at, you know, how do we think about the actual value and how that scales? And, and again, I think that there are some, some aspects, like I mentioned before, about the complexity of the organization and sort of how 
you're enabling more business complexity and supporting it at those, uh, you know, as that price goes up or with that value metric. So it's really, you know, looking at um, what's the the most solid line from, you know, increasing something to deriving more value. Uh, very high level summarization would be like a charge um, per, per seat, like per user, right? And there'll be like charge per consumption, the usage based. Mm-hmm. What are the, you know, the main considerations here uh, to go for which uh, model? Um, you know, I mean, I, I definitely think if there's, uh, if, you know, a, a customer centric way of looking at it is the, is the right mindset to use. So if you would compromise the effectiveness your of your software by cutting out users, you shouldn't have a per user model, right? It, um, like I said, hiring is a good example. Um, I mean, on the consumption side, I think um, you have to think about like what actually causes increased consumption. So something like hiring, uh, again, with open positions, um, people are, that's going to be really pegged to their growth, right? So there's sort of like natural regulation of that. So it, and every time they add somebody, like I said, it's potentially adding more value to their company. Um, So those open positions make sense as a metric. Pure consumption, like like I said, storage space, um, you know, SMS is another one that's starting to change a little bit, but a lot of companies that, you know, do marketing automation or things like that will actually charge, you know, per text message for SMS because they have very direct costs associated with that. Um, so, so in that case, I think, you know, at least for the time being, uh, customers really understand why you're doing that, right? And yeah, yeah. you're getting potentially a direct return for every additional person that you're reaching with one of those text messages. Um, but again, I think some of those things can change, right? So email marketing is a really good example. Um, there are still sending limits, um, but those are starting to, to change quite a bit and be quite a bit more flexible. And it probably relates to the fact that just sending more emails is no longer necessarily a way of getting a higher return, right? So I think um, in cases where um, that consumption leads to a really clear output or outcome for the customer, it makes sense. Um, or, you know, where they understand your costs really well and they're okay with, you know, with paying for that because it's well understood. About communication part of the pricing. So when do you think one should make the pricing visible? Um, so in general, I'm always a fan of transparent pricing. I think if you are really confident in what you're offering and you really have done the work to understand what customers value and to price and package it accordingly, there's no reason not to price transparently. Um, I uh, did ha- hear an interesting example the other day of when there's only a couple players in the market. Sometimes that is a time to keep your pricing a little um, reserved for sales conversations, right? Because um, if you're, you know, there's two main players and they're very directly competing for each other's customers and having those conversations, having somebody uh, see that pricing without really being able to talk to them about the differences between the two can be challenging. But I think for the vast majority of folks, it's more of an indication that either they are trying to squeeze every every dollar out of a customer or that they're not confident in the in the value and putting it out there like that. And then um, how do you communicate pricing when, when your price plan changes or, you know, is there changes to the pricing? Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's a very good question. Um, you know, especially when you have a case where you have either had a freemium offering or you've had a low cost offering that's gotten a lot of traction. Um, I've been in companies like that where they had many thousands of happy users that were on plans that were six, seven, eight years old. And um you know, the, the product had matured and the offering had matured. 
Um, and it can be very difficult to maintain uh, many different pricing schemes for many different buckets of customers, but it can also be different, difficult to migrate people, uh, both from a technical and logistic perspective, but also from a, from a relationship perspective. Um, my thought is to always um, give customers that have been loyal the, um, the opportunity to um, continue as long as possible, you know, as long as it's feasible for you to support that, um, to reward them, um, or to give them uh, enough notice and a, a good mm. reason to uh, graduate to the next or the new, you know, pricing scheme. If the cost to serve them is low and they've been continuous customers, then as long as they maintain that subscription and don't let it lapse, then I think, like I said, if it's technically possible for you to allow them to continue, um, that makes sense. Um, but like I said, I think also giving them enough notice, giving them, there's a lot of creative things you can do with discounting and other things to step them into the new plan, especially if there's some communication they need to do internally to get additional budget. Um, doing all those things on a really long timeline and also, you know, again, being honest about the value that they're getting. So I think if you can look into those accounts and say, wow, like they're, um, you know, they're doing really well and we can really communicate that to them or it's really clear to them, then in many cases, it's um, it's a non-issue. I think it's when companies just want to have more money from their customers, but that person may not really be getting value in the first place that that conversation becomes difficult. Um, and like I said, just the the time and the really having a sense for, you know, what are what are sort of that technical and operational challenges of having people exist in two worlds. Um, or like I said, if, if the product really has matured and you want to have a different audience, sometimes it's okay to just take a hard line and let those people drop out. Um, but, but, you know, I think those are things you want to quantify and to really have those honest discussions about, you know, what is the overall value of keeping these people in the fold versus lose, losing them. For some startup companies, they, if they're going to have, you know, literally sit down to plan for their pricing strategy, do you have some practical tips for them to DIY their own pricing plans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the first thing is to um, to do to have a really clear ideal customer profile. So doing that work can be um, very helpful in ruling things in or out, and also in usually there's a lot of um, a lot of people at the decision making table when it comes to pricing and packaging. Everybody wants to weigh in, um, and so um, being agreed on some of those foundational components first is super important, right? Who are we selling to? Who are we not selling to? And that helps, you know, helps tremendously. I think the second piece is whether you are able to work with an external firm or consultant to help you do it, or whether you do it internally, doing that um, feature prioritization sort of matrix, right? So understanding both the value um, and the willingness to pay will, will tell you a lot as well. Um, what ends up happening is you can then plot those things on, um, on uh, you know, in quadrants of sort of like high value, high willingness to pay. Okay, that's something we can pull into um, a three-tiered plan. If everything's sort of clustered around the middle where people find everything valuable, but there's not a tremendously high willingness to pay for any particular feature or set of features, you might want to consider some sort of all-in-one strategy, right? Um, and then, you know, something, for example, you know something is, um, there's a really, uh, it's really high value, but and and there's um, but only for a small number of customers. That might be something you put in like an add-on or something like that. So you can sort of find different ways once you have that feature prioritization sort of matrix or that understanding um, of uh, of doing it. And I think from a DIY perspective, you know, not everybody's going to be able to go out and 
engage external folks. Um, and if you have a you know an existing customer base or you have that ideal customer profile, you can um, either pull your customers in a, in a semi-structured fashion or even um, do something um, you know, uh, pay to get a very small panel and ask them some of these things, right? Um, but if you've got no, you have no customer, you have very few customers and you have no money to do that. Um, the other thing you can do is again, engage that internal team that has a sense for both the product, the market, hopefully. And then also um, you never want to make all of your decisions anecdotally, but if you have sales teams that have been trying to talk to folks about this, you know, to get this off the ground, or you have marketing teams that have been testing different messaging, you can put that information together to kind of DIY that feature prioritization matrix, or at least directionally understand, um, hey, we talked a lot about this and no, no one cares, right? Or every time we get on the phone with somebody, they ask about this, you can start to at least, like I said, um, get the get the direction right. Um, and then once you get a little more traction, you can um, go back and revisit those things. Or if you're, um, you know, the same thing can be true before you build things, right? You can be trying to say like, hey, we understand that this offering is a little thin. We need to build something that is going to be of high value to a lot of people that they're willing to pay for it in order to move to this packaging strategy. But again, you know, I think it is um, knowing your ideal customer and then um, understanding as objectively as is feasible, you know, what is that prioritization? Yeah. Great answer, thank you. And then, is there a good way that you recommend to benchmark the different pricing points? Oh, that's a really um, good question. So, in terms of like, evaluating how you're how you're doing, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of it, especially in startups, is going to be very tied to what your revenue and growth goals are. Um, but I would say, um, you know, you certainly, if you have a, a free plan or trial, you want to be. Um, making sure that you're pacing or that you have some understanding of um, how many people are finding you and then how many people are actually signing up. Um, I would say another thing would be to um, really look at usage. So not just looking at signups and stopping there, but then saying like, are the people that we're, that we're bringing in um, actually engaging with the product? Um, and then are they doing it once or are they, you know, is that like ongoing? And so then, I, you know, I think, if you have um, sufficient sufficient traffic to your site, your pricing is transparent. Um, in most cases, the pricing page is going to be one of the most visited pages on the site. Um, seeing how many of those people actually then take that next step would be the, the first piece. But then also, like I said, seeing if they're the right people, right? So you could have a situation where you are getting tons of people up front and then they're dropping off, which might mean um, it might mean that your pricing and packaging is wrong or it might mean that you aren't actually, your ideal customer is not actually who you thought it was, right? Um, but those those pieces all function very tightly together. Um, you know, and then I think the other thing is, um, you know, there can be external pressures, especially if there's outside funding and things like that. And so um, making sure that you just have really honest metrics, like all the way through that process. Um, same thing with, if you have a sales team that um, that you're not closing deals based on, um, the effectiveness of like an individual salesperson, but then the person's not actually very successful in the product, right? Because that can be a mismatch between your pricing and packaging. And um, so even if you get the customers, again, if they're not active or retained, um, it might not be right. Do you think for a startup company, they do you think they should differentiate themselves based on pricing? I mean, it it is a it is a it is something that can work. I think it's a short-term tactic. So 
Um, certainly if you mm. want to um, get people to consider you when they're pretty entrenched in another product, that's one way to do it. Um, again, I think having that plan for how you're going to, what you're going to do or what you might do uh, if, again, your competitor decides they're going to drop to your price and there's still a superior offering or, um, you know, uh, if you can't cover your costs or, you know, something about whatever you're doing is not going to be sustainable. I think those are, you know, it's not really a good approach in those cases, but I do think um, even if you know your product provides X value, sacrificing a little bit of that to, um, to get a foot in the door um, can make sense as long as, again, you have that strategy for growth and you know, um, again, the, the, um, the thing you really want to do is maximize lifetime value. Right. So I think if you know over time that they'll grow into your product, if you don't need to collect those dollars up front, you can allow them to have that experience. And then it's a lot easier to, um, to increase their revenue later. Market changes pretty frequently. So how often do you think the product marketers should reevaluate their pricing? Yeah. Um, so, so ProfitWell has some really good data on that. Um, and to, to sum it up roughly, I think the people that do it as often as quarterly have the best overall performance. So, um, and then the people that are doing it like yearly are sort of laggers in terms of their growth. Um, so I think that that's a good indicator mm -hmm. that it's um, it should be on your schedule quarterly. Now, that doesn't mean wholesale pricing changes. It doesn't mean you change the whole model, but it can mean testing or adjusting different things to respond to um, to changes in the market, to um, get ahead of changes in the market. Um, so I think uh, making sure that you have time and um both an experimentation roadmap, but also, uh, you know, time, I, like cycles in the product roadmap to do some of those things if you need product support um, I, is something that uh, you should plan for on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time here. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with our audience? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, the first is, I think, to, if, if it's something you're curious about, to just um, start start consuming information about it. There's so much available. Like I said, ProfitWell is an incredible uh, resource in terms of content about pricing. They have a lot of great um, articles and webinars, but there's a lot of other folks doing it too. So it's not it's not as scary as you think. Um, I would say even if you're a teeny tiny uh, company, um, start making sure your data is good and that you're tracking the right things up front because that's going to come in handy later. Um, and then I think again, um, to just... Uh, you know, really be um, really be honest about the value you're providing because that's ultimately going to lead to growth. Again, to focus on uh, customer lifetime value, right? So, not that first sale or that first transaction, but like, how is this person actually going to grow? Because that's um, really going to mean the success or failure of your of your monetization strategy and ultimately your company is um, being able to do that and understanding what the levers are you actually have to work with. Yeah, great advice. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and knowledge today with us. Really appreciate it. It's very nice. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into This is Product Marketing, brought to you by Product Marketing Hive, a product marketing community that gives back. Check out our website, productmarketinghive.com, to join our community, meet fellow product marketers, and access free resources, including training, playbooks, templates, and events. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and give a 5-star rating on the platform of your choice. See you next time.